Love and Radio. My first experience with guns, I was young. I'm not really sure how old I was. I mean, as a, as I remembered, I was really young um, because my parents were divorced and my mom had just started dating again. And uh, she dated this one guy for a while that um, was really into hunting and he had a cabin in the woods. And so one weekend, my sister and my mom and I went up to this cabin in the woods and uh, I, I think I have a negative impression of the experience overall because he tricked us into eating deer by telling us that it was pork and then told us afterwards that we had secretly been eating these adorable animals. And to a little girl, that's pretty traumatic. So uh, at, at one point in the evening, he took us outside and uh, and he was like, hey, you know, I've got a target and you guys want to try shooting some guns. <laughs> and he he handed this this gun to me and he had one to my sister and one to my mom as I recall it was just a very heavy black piece of metal um and it was it was loaded and it was in my hands and I was totally freaked out I was um I just stared at it and my sister just went crazy with it she, she thought it was great she uh she pointed the gun at the target into the woods and she shot it and made a huge noise and I I think I screamed and like ran away or something I don't know um but uh I just stood there holding the gun and watching my sister and my mom and this guy shoot and finally I just like set the gun down and went inside because I, I couldn't handle it I was just jumping with every shot and um my sister and my mom were having a really good time, and I was just like, I'm, I'm going to go inside now. This is, this is not my bag. So you didn't even pull the trigger? I didn't pull the trigger. I, I was really terrified to even be holding it. And um, I feel like emotions are simpler when you're younger. Or maybe you just don't even think to analyze them at all. But I just, um, it was just a thing of, this maybe is bad, and so I'm not going to do it. That was that was kind of what was going through my head. It's like this is bad. I'm gonna go where it's good. <laughs> what was so bad about it? It's just there was so much potential in in what I was holding. I mean, I I couldn't have um, articulated this at that age, but you know, the the feeling was of potential. Like the weight of the gun was the weight of this terrible <laughs> fatality that could occur from from holding such a thing, and. Um, you know, I think a big part of it was also the noise that it made. You know, it didn't sound like something safe or something that I should be holding. I, you know, I, I think I definitely felt like the gun owned me more than I owned the gun. going to Manchester, New Hampshire, to shoot some guns. You and Steve and I are going, and um, we're going to shoot some kind of smaller gun, as well as potentially a machine gun. It's about an hour away. We're driving out, October, cold night. What do you think it's going to be like? Whenever I think of a machine gun, I think of this, like, massive... uh, 
just hunk of metal that's maybe like five times the diameter of my arm and uh, I don't know, like half my height and that shooting it will like blast my body apart. So, so that's what I'm hoping won't happen, I guess is what I'm saying. Are you nervous? I'm, I'm, yes, I'm nervous. When I was 29 years old, I found a loaded revolver in my father's underwear drawer. Though I had been on my own for 10 years, I somehow managed to maintain my lifelong habit of rummaging through my father's belongings. Rather than accept my father for the detached and unpredictable man that he was, I believed him to be a man of mystery and carefully hidden secrets. A sneak peek into his dresser or his nightstand seemed a great way to uncover those mysteries and to get to know him. Maybe he worked for the CIA. Maybe he had another family or a secret Swiss bank account. One of the first things I ever found in my father's underwear drawer was a copy of Playboy magazine. I was eight years old at the time. In later years, I found reels of pornographic films, large hunting knives, and an aluminum slingshot. Until the gun, none of it seemed strange to me. For all I knew, every father in America took his family out to dinner on Sunday night and stashed knives and porn in with his boxers and briefs. But loaded guns were different, and I was old enough to know it. When I found the revolver, I was a post-baccalaureate pre-medical student living in Harvard Square. Within the year prior to this discovery, my parents had lost their home to the IRS and separated and gotten back together again twice before finally settling into a two-bedroom apartment in Brookline, Massachusetts. Despite constant fighting, depression over the loss of their home, as well as most of their finances, they were trying to make it work. So when my mother phoned me in Cambridge one afternoon to tell me she was worried about my father, that he seemed angry and despondent and emotionally detached, I did the only thing I knew how to do to find out what was going on inside our introverted head of household. I went over to their apartment when no one was home and looked inside his underwear drawer. The gun rested in a small, water-stained cardboard box. I guessed it was a revolver because it looked just like what revolvers look like on television. Bulbous, revolving cylinder, six ominous chambers, one death-defying trigger. I lifted the gun out of the box with my thumb and forefinger, just like someone in a movie would do if she had to lift a gun but didn't want to get hurt, and peered into the cylinder. Five of the six chambers were filled with brass. With my father not due home from work for at least five hours, I contacted my mother and sister at their respective jobs and instructed them to meet me in my parents' bedroom. There, the three of us sitting cross-legged in a semicircle around the loaded revolver as if preparing to play a game of Russian roulette, I confessed everything. I told them that I had been looking in Dad's underwear drawer for years and ran inventory of all the items I ever had found. If my mother was at all relieved, she didn't show it. Rather, she looked lost, seasick. None of this was what she had planned for her family, sitting in a bedroom with her adult daughters on a weekday afternoon discussing her husband's loaded gun. It didn't take long for us to conclude that my father was in serious trouble. In despair over recent financial losses, he probably was suicidal. We agreed that in his present condition, not only was it unhealthy for him to have a loaded gun at his disposal, but equally unhelpful would it be for his family to inform him that they had been looking through his drawers, and indeed that his oldest daughter had been looking through them since she was in the second grade. Therefore, the only thing to do was to somehow get rid of the gun before Dad came home from work. If finding it missing made him upset, what was the worst he could do? It's not like there would be a loaded gun in the house. We told ourselves it would be an icebreaker, a chance to address whatever in his mind it was that needed addressing. 
I offered my mother and sister what seemed like the reasonable suggestion of going to the police, explaining the situation and leaving the loaded gun with them. Unfortunately, my mother rejected this plan, explaining that since the move to the apartment, my father had not yet re-registered his car, so it was even less likely that he had registered this gun, and what would happen if we took his unregistered gun to the police? He'd wind up in jail, and in his fragile condition, that surely would be the end of him, not to mention their tenuous marriage. What happened next was Carrie's idea. Why my mother agreed, I never will know. All I can say is I didn't like it from the start, that I had nothing to do with it, that instead of joining them, I went off to a chemistry class, and by the time I got back to the apartment, the deed was done. What Carrie suggested was this. Dump it. Dump it, I asked. Yeah, we need to throw it into the ocean or drop it off of a bridge. I couldn't believe my ears. That only happens in the movies, I told them. Real-life Jewish women don't dump loaded guns into oceans. My mother abruptly stood up. Your sister's right, she said. We need to dump it. It's better than making a scene. Paying me and my anxiety no mind, they first rejected the idea of dropping the gun off of a bridge into a body of water because it was daylight in Boston and they were worried someone would see them. As an alternative, they decided on a dumpster. They would drive until they found a deserted alley with a dumpster in it and then drop the gun inside and drive off. When I expressed my concern about leaving a loaded gun in a public dumpster, my mother and sister reassured me that they would wrap the water-stained box in so many layers of paper and plastic that no one would know what it was, and they would place it at the very bottom of the dumpster so it wouldn't be seen. Two hours later, the job was done. For the rest of that day, I was wrought with guilt. From chemistry class to dinner to my three-and-a-half-hour chem lab, all I could think about was the likelihood of a sanitation engineer innocently transferring the contents of a dumpster into the back of a truck and the truck exploding. I wasn't certain it would happen that way, an explosion, but gunpowder was involved and pressure and sparks. It didn't take a chemistry class to know those were terrible bedfellows. By the time I was home from lab, in bed and trying to sleep, my imagination had ventured into this dark scenario. A child goes picking through the dumpster, looking for a toy, or a destitute senior is looking for food, and then kapow! I bolted upright and turned on the light. How could I ever call myself a doctor if I once knowingly had endangered the life of another human being? At 11.30 p.m., with very little in the way of apology, I phoned Joni, my bravest and most trustworthy friend, told her the whole story, and begged her to help me. Next, I woke up Carrie. You have to show me the dumpster, I told her. Why? Because I have to get that gun. Somebody's going to get hurt. And then what are you going to do with it, my sister said. Dump it in a river. I told her it, but it was an out-and-out lie. I had no intention of doing anything but unloading the gun, that was where Joni came in, and taking it to the police. Better my father be fined or arrested than some innocent party maimed or killed. Carrie sighed. All right, it's in Coolidge Corner. Coolidge Corner? While Coolidge Corner was a plush metro enclave complete with Starbucks, an art house, movie theater, and at least three different designer eyeglass stores, why didn't you just take it out for lunch at the mall? In response, Carrie hung up on me. Ten minutes later, Joni and I were hauling Carrie out of bed. By midnight, the three of us were gliding headlights off down a darkened alley. We passed parked Acuras and Volvos, overflowing recycling bins and gas grills before coming upon a large, navy blue dumpster just yards away from where the alley met a main street. 
I was the driver of the getaway car. My job was to sit in the car, both hands on the steering wheel, motor running, ready to bolt. In the meantime, with the end of my new yellow kitchen broom, Joni poked at rancid chicken bones, rotting banana peels, and the dumpster's other indeterminable mounds of filth. Guided by only the glow of Carrie's flashlight, Joni would point to this or that and then look to Carrie, huddled in her robe and pajamas for confirmation. After about 15 minutes, Joni finally landed the flashlight upon a manila envelope that Carrie identified with a slight exasperated nod of her head as the package that contained our father's loaded gun. The plan was to take Carrie back home to bed and then bring the gun to Joni's living room and call her father. Having grown up on a ranch surrounded by tractors, pig feet, and rifles, Joni was certain that, with the guidance of her father on the other end of the line in Oregon, she would know how to remove the bullets. And once the bullets were removed, I could more safely cruise around town in search of a police station at which to deposit the gun. Unfortunately, Carrie suddenly was wide awake in the back seat. She leaned forward, poked her head between Joni and I, and said excitedly, It's dark out. Let's dump it now. No one will see. We can throw it off of the Tobin Bridge. I don't know how to get to the Tobin Bridge, I lied. Then drive to South Natick and we can throw it in the Charles River. Natick was a smallish town 30 minutes away. I'm not driving all the way to Natick, I told her. You have to get rid of it now, my sister said. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Look, I told Carrie. Joni's going to call her dad and he's going to talk us through removing the bullets and then I'm taking the gun to the police. Carrie leaned back on the seat with a dramatic thud. I cannot believe this, she groaned. A half hour later, we were sitting on the floor of the sunroom in Carrie's apartment when Joni figured it out. Without even having to disturb her father at home in his pajamas in Portland, Oregon, with the gun lying before us on a towel like a wounded animal, it was Joni who took a close look at the fine print on the side of the water-stained box, Joni who gently removed the gun and said, It's a starter pistol, the kind you use in races. Oops. On the phone the next morning, my mother just sounded sad. You girls shouldn't be in alleys at midnight, she said. Maybe it was because she's a psychoanalyst that my mother knew better than to claim the whole fiasco was my fault. She knew that my propensity for snooping clues as to the inner workings of her husband, as well as each of our readiness to believe him to be a gun-toting suicide waiting to happen, was caused by a collision of familial forces, all of which had been years in the making. At one point, she even apologized. I'm sorry, she said, that I couldn't help you to know your father better, that you grew up feeling that was the only way. We all agreed my father should never know about any of this. I volunteered to clean off the box and return the gun to his underwear drawer. It was the least I could do. I wish I could say that the gun, safely restored to its fruit-of-the-loom nest, our family was no worse for the wear, that my parents recovered from financial apocalypse and are now growing old together in suburban Boston, but I can't. It's not that my father ever found out about the gun. He had absolutely no idea that we had discovered it, dumped it, retrieved it, and then taken it for a midnight ride until last year when I told him the story. It was something else that blew my family apart, something far less tangible than a loaded starter pistol, and much more destructive, something more to do with a loss of faith and an inability to see beyond betrayal. At the time I told my father this story, he was living in Connecticut with another woman. 
We were in his car, driving to buy groceries for a barbecue. Without turning his eyes from the road, my father just shook his head and asked with a frustrated laugh, why would I keep a loaded gun in my underwear drawer? It was all I could do to keep from crying, from my family's long history of misunderstandings and lack of communication, for all of the years I had looked for my father in his underwear drawer rather than in the flesh. But why, I wondered, would a corporate accountant, who neither coached track and field nor ran races, keep a loaded starter gun in his underwear drawer, or a hunting knife, a slingshot, a library of porn for that matter, ten years later, and the mystery remained the same? I don't know, I answered him, I just don't know why. But at the house, while my father and his girlfriend were occupied at the grill, I stole off and poked my head inside his new bedroom. I guessed the low, wide dresser with makeup and jewelry strewn across the top as belonging to his girlfriend, and the tall five-drawer cluttered with a familiar collection of coins and watches, ticket stubs and shoehorns as his. Steadying myself in the door frame, I tried to remember the impulse to infiltrate, to stalk my father like he was a deer in the woods. If anything, I had more questions now than ever before. Was he regretful over what had happened to him and my mother? Did he like this life better than the last? Do you want a turkey burger or a hot dog, my father called from the backyard. Most answers I've learned should never be discovered out of context, without their owners having an opportunity to offer an explanation, however meager and confusing it might be. Others are best left to a slow and gradual unearthing along the lines of that offered by a hundred years of psychotherapy. And a select few questions just need not ever be answered at all. Burger, I shouted to my father as I stepped carefully away from his bedroom door. Glock 17, uh, winch magazine is loaded, you're going to insert it, pull back on the slide, let go. A round is automatically chambered into uh, the barrel. Um, after that, it's ready to shoot. The only safety on a Glock that is external is the uh, safety lever on the button. Okay, That has to be pressed in in order for the trigger to be uh, activated. The um, slide will lock back on the last round, and that's it with this. Any questions? The MP5, uh, 32 round magazine. We only ask that you load 10 to 15 rounds in it. Insert the magazine, come from the top, hit the release, automatically chambers around. It's ready to fire. At that point, you will load your selector switch, which will be unsafe. Safe, semi automatic, three round burst, full automatic. 
Uh, to save ammo and have more fun, I suggest just sticking it uh, to semi-auto or three-round burst. If you do go to full auto, there's three to five-round burst only, and that's it. Make sure that the weapon is shoulder uh, put on the shoulder to shoot. Uh, feet uh, spread apart, shoulder width, one foot forward. And just lean into it, and uh, like I said, just keep your aiming on the orange center of the target. Um, this will lock back on the last round as well. That's it. Any questions? Um, when you go through that maroon door, you go through one door at a time. Uh, make sure that the first door is shut before you open up the second one. Thank you. You're welcome. I got the notion in my mind that I could do stand-up comedy. So I came back to Los Angeles where I grew up and was living with my parents and doing comedy about one or two nights a week. And I wasn't working. And I was very depressed. And I wasn't sure where my life was going. I felt really lost. And before I had gone up to college, I had worked at this toy store. And at the toy store, there was this kind of, let's just say there was extra cash around. And I was sort of paid off to look the other way or something like that. Can't go into full details right here. But nonetheless, the money that I got from this thing, I used to buy a shotgun. And I'd never fired the shotgun. Um, I had it in its box. It was like this weird, like, thin coffin that this gun sat in. And I'd open it up and occasionally, you know, you know, pump it. It was a pump shotgun, you know, kind of thing. And I never bought any shells for it because my mom always said, there should never be a gun in this house because I have such a bad temper. So I had it, just had it in my parents' house while I was in college, just sat in the closet. Just, there it was. But now here I am back at my parents' house, 22, doing college dropout, doing comedy half-ass. And I felt that there was no hope. There was no future. There was nothing. And so the night... The <laughs> This is true as my I experienced it. The night that I was supposed that I was uh, the night before I was going to pick up the shells, so that I would use the gun. I only needed one shell, you know, because I was at that place. I was just like, you know, I don't I don't care anymore. Um, I I just want out. That night I went to sleep. 
and I guess I was in that sort of twilight place and, and you know I've hallucinated before with drugs and stuff so it wasn't that it was something else I had you know what some might describe an out of body experience I don't know what it was but I'll tell you this I was in my bed I was falling asleep and then suddenly suddenly my consciousness was on the other side of the room and I felt the separation and my consciousness was acting out what I was planning on doing the next day I had the gun out of the, the box and I you know pumped it and I put my forehead on the barrel and I had my thumb on the trigger and I pulled it and there was just like huge force it was just, it was just incredible but then there was like no, no pain there was nothing but I but I felt my body like just go completely like a sack of potatoes where it was just it was just like this weight and this energy was ripping out of my chest and it was like just ripping out of my chest and the first thought I had was oops you fucked up buddy and then my body just kind of hit like a sack of potatoes and then suddenly like my consciousness was back in my body in my bed and I, it was like somebody had thrown a punch and hit me right in the stomach I was like winded I couldn't believe it and I, I kind of got my bearings and I sat up and I caught my breath <sighs> and in that moment I just it was like an epiphany you know um, I realized um, you know two things and and that is that we have a soul or something that is beyond the body that has a consciousness we have that I feel and you can't kill your soul with a bullet open space in front of us, um, full of bullet holes all through the ceiling, styrofoam ceiling, and bullets are scattered on the floor. And, uh, yeah, what, what else? Nick's holding a, a fucking machine gun. <laughs> Yeah. I think Adrian has to go first, Steve. <laughs> no, that's not think I do. No, honestly, I want to make sure that, like, someone knows how to fire the gun that can show me how to do it. Nick is uh, pinning up the, um, the person that we're going to shoot. He's got a nice little red heart. Blob of a heart. Um, we're figuring out how to lower him into his destiny. Nick thinks he's a pretty good shot. (laughs) 
just about to fire his first uh, shot here. See, I never read the manual. Can you tell this is my first time? No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. That's intense. You got him in the heart. <laughs> not bad, is that it? Pretty good. You gotta let your elbows take in some of the some of the shock because like when you I notice your arms are almost locked. Yeah. <laughs> and that just throws your whole balance off, makes it harder. Right. It took me a long time to learn that too. I've been here a couple times and I finally figured it out. Cool. So I just figured I'd let you know. <laughs> Thank Thanks. You. Okay. Have fun. Thanks. Thank you. So what do you think? I think it's your turn. <laughs> I was scared. <laughs> <laughs> so, you stick the bullets in there. Okay. I think loading again is really hard. If I were like in the heat of a moment and I had to like... <laughs> Oh gosh. Once I put this, these bullets in this gun, that's officially when I am I so a dangerous one. Point it at me. Just go like this. What do I do? Ah, okay. Now it's loaded. Now it's loaded. So now when you press on it, it's going to shoot. Okay. okay. <laughs> My hands are shaking. Alright. Right. I, just, I just want to see what I'm doing. Alright. It's going to kick back, so make sure you're ready for it. How much is it going to kick? Not a lot, but it'll be... Do I have to look at it? Yes. Yeah, you have to look at it. You have to look where you're in. That's the rule. Okay. Um, how do I turn the safety off? I think it's off. Okay. Here it goes. Sorry, Mom and Dad. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Did I kill him? I don't know. <laughs> it's not as scary as I thought. It's just a bit of a jump. I'm trying to get him in the head. Right in the brains. <laughs> I got him in the brain! <laughs> Is that the last one? Yeah. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> okay. Man, you're white as a shit. <laughs> right, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Not because of this. <laughs> no, you're cool, you're a man. <laughs> That's Adrian. <laughs>
Man. I said to Dick, I'm gonna get him in the head. That's harsh. And then I fucking got him in the head. totally comfortable. I think every now and then I remember that I'm surrounded by um, fatal weapons. <laughs> and then I'm like, whoa. But it's, it's more of a forced whoa. Like, Adrian, you should think about this instead of a, uh, oh my god, I need to hide under the table. That's, that's quite a difference than before. You were like shaking before. Yeah, I really wanted to hug you guys, but I was trying to refrain. <laughs> <laughs> been listening to love and radio the show is conceived and produced by nick vanderpolk that's me and adrian mathowitz today's program featured steve schultz who accompanied us on our trip to the firing range the shotgun story was told by lance anderson from the verge of the fringe podcast online at verge of the fringe.blogspot.com the story about the woman finding her father's gun was called revolver on your mark get set find dad and was written and performed by harlan aisley Harley has a book. It's called Buying Dad. For more information, go to buyingdad.com. Or visit our website. It's loveandradio.org. Love and Radio.